Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is Wednesday, September the 28th, and we are happy to be back in front of you again this week. Uh, my name is Tom Allingsworth, and I was gone last week uh, taking care of some uh, personal leadership business, and uh, I'm back here with you this week on the Gestalt IT Rundown. And joining me, of course, is my wonderful co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, you were also out last week at Cloud Field Day. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Um, I have to say, uh, special thanks to Corey and the crew for uh, holding down the fort, uh, Jim and Gerard. It was uh, nice to see your smiling faces. Absolutely. They are some of the best neighbors here on this Good Neighbor Day. And like a good neighbor, we're here to bring you some of the news of the week, some exciting stories and some big news in the in the chip space. So we're going to go ahead and dive right in uh, with a topic that's been actually becoming a lot more popular here on the rundown. That would be CXL. It's ramping up quickly. And this story is going to be memorable. That's because the latest news is coming from a startup called Intelliprop, which has announced that they have a new line of chips that is designed to help share internal and external memory through CXL. Now, they're calling it the Omega Memory Fabric, and it is designed to solve those memory bottlenecks that occur when servers have more RAM than they need, but they're unable to share it with any of the other systems in a composable infrastructure setup. Now, that's mostly due to architecture issues, which is something that CXL is designed to fix. The Omega uses FPGAs for now, but they're soon going to spin their own ASICs to offer pooled memory across all kinds of servers, whether it's related to AI, ML, HPC, or big data applications. Um, Steven, we've been talking a lot about CXL. What should an announcement like this one do for CXL adoption? Yeah, this is interesting because, well, there's a few a few nuances here. So first of all, I've known the crew at Intelliprop for a while. Uh, the company has been in business for a long, long time. They were actually a uh, chip maker, a chip designer for various companies. And in fact, if you uh, really want to know, a lot of the SaaS and SATA and NVMe and memory controller chips that are out there from um, various companies you may have heard of were actually designed by Intelliprop um, and uh, basically... Uh, prototyped, designed, spun up, FPGA'd, ASIC, all that kind of stuff was handled by Intelliprop. So that's that's kind of the history of the company. Uh, they recently brought in a new CEO who's a familiar name in the industry, uh, who is going to be taking the company um, in a new direction. And that new direction is basically producing their own products. And those products center around CXL uh, memory fabrics. So essentially, uh, Intelliprop, doing what Intelliprop does, uh, designed a an ASIC, uh, which is not yet existing. It's an FPGA for now, but it's going to be an ASIC soon that allows uh, for host bus adapters and switches that allows uh, pooled memory outside the server. Uh, this is extremely exciting because this is what we're all excited. This is what we're waiting for from CXL. Right now, uh, the current CXL products, of which there are, let me think, um, two, uh, are basically memory expansion cards that go inside a server. And uh, they allow you to have memory that's not on the memory bus, but is on the PCIe bus, which is awesome. But, eh, um, you know, that's just the first step. Uh, what we're waiting for with CXL is to get a fabric so that uh, devices outside the chassis at rack scale can be composed into a server. Now, that's not here, and it's not going to be here for a while. In fact, the current rev of the CXL protocol doesn't even really support that. The CXL spec is really still inside the box. But there's new versions coming. Uh, it's actively being worked on. Uh, PCI Express is developing as well. 
Uh, we've got PCIe 4, we've got 5 coming, we've got 6 probably down the road. Um, and the same thing is happening with CXL. And that's really what we're seeing here with Intelliprop. So this company, who is really on the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff, um, they were active in the Gen Z consortium where they were building um, pooled uh, memory that scaled outside the box. Sound familiar? And Gen Z, as we've reported previously on the rundown, has been folded into CXL. And so essentially the Intelliprop uh, solution that we're talking about here, uh, the Omega Fabric, is basically a Gen Z product. But since Gen Z is CXL now, and all the CXL protocol is supported on the Omega Fabric, you can basically say that this is sort of a preview of where CXL is going. Now, for the, for the time being, there's a lot of proprietary stuff in here, but all this proprietary stuff is going to get folded into the protocol sooner or later, and Intelliprop is absolutely committed to making that happen. They are very eager to have this happen, and this is really where the entire direction of CXL is going. So anyway, the, the bottom line is if you're looking for a product that allows you to have pooled rack scale memory, um, you know, Intelliprop's the only game in town. If you're looking to see where CXL is going next, it's going here. So be ready because this is going to be a very exciting time in server architecture and Intelliprop is showing us the direction that it's going. Tom, the U.S. federal government is finally ready to secure BGP. As a result of the relative lack of controls in the protocol that keeps most of the internet running, the Department of Defense and Justice have issued a warning about the insecurities and how current security practices are poorly implemented. This announcement has many providers worried that a federal mandate for security will be coming soon. Tom, do the feds need to step in here with BGP? Unfortunately, I think they do. And one of the reasons why is the fact that we see a lot of hand-wringing coming out of the internet service provider community uh, when this came out. Now, just so we're clear, the government just doesn't step in when they feel like something needs to be done. Uh, they're like your parents when you're fighting with your brother or your sister. Uh, they step in when they have to before problems happen. So a lot of where this started coming from was the fact that there was this little um, special military operation that happened back in February. Um, you may have seen it in the news. And one of the things that preceded said special military operation was a lot of cyber warfare. And one of the things that we've been seeing increasingly over the last few years is this ability to essentially hijack BGP to do things that it shouldn't. In fact, um, the person who kicked off said special military operation, or at least the country, um, has been known to suddenly reroute a whole bunch of traffic through some of their data centers by basically pretending to be an autonomous system in BGP. And there's nothing we can do about it because BGP basically blindly accepts whatever you tell it as the solution to the problem. And that's why we've started coming up with things like BGPSEC, um, RPKI, you know, using uh, public key cryptography to kind of secure BGP updates, um, even something like MANNERS, the Mutually Assured Norms for Routing Security, which is something that people came up with because they really wanted it to say MANNERS. But the important thing here is that according to the report that the DOJ and the DOD came out with, um, we've had these things for years and nobody seems to be implementing them. Uh, you know, it's like email security. We could probably stop spam tomorrow if we really wanted to. We just choose not to because it's going to cost money. And that's where the ISPs are like, oh, woe is me. I don't want to implement all of these new security controls because it means I might actually have to spend money on my infrastructure. And as I am fond of saying, there's nobody that leaves deeper fingerprints on every dollar they spend than an internet service provider. Because every day that hardware runs, 
is one day they don't have to replace it. And that means that their cost numbers look way, way better. So now when the federal government is stepping in and going, you know what, we're not kidding around anymore. You need to decide on something. The implied or else is we'll do it for you. And that's, I think, what they're really hoping for. If I, if I want to be cynical for just a minute, I'm, I'm hoping that this isn't the case. But I think what happens is Verizon and Level 3 and all these other internet backbone providers really just want the government to come down and say, you have to do this. Because then the next step is they get to go to the government and go, well, since you made it a requirement, we're going to need money to do it. The other problem that comes up is the fact that there are a lot of places that run the internet that are not the U.S., and they're a little worried about the U.S. federal government putting implementations in place that would require them to use additional security to be able to talk to internet-based companies. I can see why that might be a concern. But ultimately, the reason why this happened is because nobody did anything. If somebody had stepped up and done something and made it catch on, we probably wouldn't be where we're at. But this is no longer a, man, we really should take a look at this because it might be important later. We're seeing the results of what happens when nobody wants to secure the protocols that are the underpinning of our internet. All right, Stephen, um, speaking of the internet and cloud, you probably heard about this little thing called serverless. Um, according to anybody who works in the cloud, it is the future of computing. Um, companies like Amazon and Microsoft have been touting it as a solution, and it's been taking off. But guess who's getting involved now? That would be our friends over at Cloudflare, because they've been offering a serverless solution for a while, and they're wanting to increase the consumption of that. And to do it, um, they're basically going to be offering monies to companies that are going to be adopting it. Um, a recent announcement said that they offered to connect interested customers running on Cloudflare serverless to a group of venture capitalists who have put forth up to $1.25 billion in investment money. The idea is that startups will be able to save costs in the long term by adopting a serverless platform so they're not paying for hardware, but also get a little bit of cash to sweeten the pot for their own ends by these companies who just so happen to be willing to invest in companies running on Cloudflare. This is according to Matthew Prince, the CEO of Cloudflare. Stephen, I know that Cloudflare has aspirations to kind of grow outside of its existing, um, I don't know, uh, usefulness. But are they going to be able to take on Amazon and steal some of that market share away? Yeah, this is Cloudflare doing Cloudflare. And um, I think that obviously anytime you need to talk about Cloudflare in 2022, we're also going to need to point out that they've had a bit of a backlash over their uh, open door policy for uh, protecting sites on the Internet. Um, and then they had a backlash over their policy for going back on that policy. But uh, be that as it may, I know that there's some sour grapes and, and, and ill will toward Cloudflare out there. Um, the company is incredibly important in the industry. And frankly, the what they're doing here with Cloudflare Workers is incredibly important as well. So first off, I want to point out that Cloudflare Workers um, is, is not the same thing as like AWS Lambda or Function as a Service or something like that. The, the existing Cloudflare Workers product uses the V8 JavaScript engine to offload work from the client more than the server. In other words, it's running JavaScript in Cloudflare on behalf of the web browser client. And this is important, uh, an important differentiator because most other function as a service is more on the server side. Essentially, it's spinning up a container um, or at least doing a, um, a server side service. Uh, this is uh, offloading JavaScript on the client side, which is pretty interesting. Um, 
But that being said, I don't think that's really what this is all about. I think that what we're going to see is uh, Cloudflare starting to do uh, function as a service, true function as a service with containers in the cloud and really kind of competing with a lot of the uh, AWS stuff, especially the Lambda uh, function as a service. And of course, the similar products from Google and, and so on. And, and frankly, I think that this is going to work out. My prediction is that Cloudflare is going to do this right. This is a company that has always adhered to um, internet standards as much as possible and then really run with them. And that's what they're doing here as well, whether it's their existing workers product, which, like I said, uh, adheres to the V8 uh, JavaScript from uh, Chrome or some future uh, function as a service uh, standard. I definitely think that Cloudflare is going to do the right thing here. And I think that it'll see some adoption because, frankly, um, despite, as I said, some of the uh, concurrent concerns in the in the community, uh, Cloudflare is uh, very much a respected and, um, and, and useful tool, a uh, useful engine uh, out there for running things. And I think that a lot of developers uh, are still very much on the Cloudflare bandwagon. And so, yeah, I think that this is a chance to succeed for them. And I think the interesting thing is, as Matthew Prince said, that they're not really going up against Amazon or Google or whoever. They're offering new services. Those new services are compelling, and those new services are going to take away uh, potentially growth areas for companies like Amazon and Google. In other words, it's not about, hey, we're going to offer, you know, I don't know, containers or virtual machines or whatever. It's about, hey, we're going to do something new that you're also trying to do. We're going to do it better, and we're going to end up walking away with this market, which pretty much is also a classic Cloudflare, in my opinion. Tom, a recent uh, report from analyst group uh, Del Oro has shown that SESI, SSE, and SD-WAN markets have grown by more than 30% in Q2 of this year. The big players are still dominating the market, with SSE being rolled by Cisco, Zscaler, and Symantec, while SD-WAN is still the domain of Fortinet, VMware, and Cisco. Each of those named companies combined have at least 50% of those markets. Per the report, there are some 35 other companies in the market, though, even though the top 11 have 80% of the market. Uh, Tom, uh, this is your area. This is something we've talked about quite a lot at Networking Field Day and uh, other events. Um, what's going on here? Is it going to keep growing? Uh, what's this market all about? Analyst firm finds that hot market continues to grow. Film at 11. Uh, no, that, that's a little bit of tongue in cheek, but I think it's interesting because you, when you break down the report, Deloro actually says that the SASE market is composed of two components. SSE and SD-WAN. And if you go back and you look at my conversations video that I recorded a couple of months ago, um, yeah, that's basically what I said is SSE is software, SD-WAN is hardware. It's the access layer. And when you look at what's going on, SD-WAN makes total sense. Who are the three biggest players in the market? Cisco, Fortinet, and VMware. That would be Viptela, VeloCloud, and the, the native one that Fortinet built. That makes total sense to me. The, the biggest players in the market are going to continue to drive market share. So where does SSE come into play? Well, look at who those people are. Symantec, which is actually owned by Broadcom, Zscaler, and, well, Cisco. The other two are basically software-only plays. And that means that we're reaching a point where SD-WAN has become pervasive. Um, when's the last time any of the networking people that are listening to this podcast deployed a serial link on a router? Go on, I'll wait. You may have to look this up in your, your files. Most everything is an Ethernet handoff now. Most everything is using a special built appliance that's running some form of an x86 processor. The real 
value is starting to come from the software services that are on top of it. And by breaking out SSE as a separate market segment, what Del Oro and a lot of other companies actually are saying is you can get market share without offering a hardware appliance. And so for companies like Cisco, this isn't a big deal because they're going to sell it as a package. I don't think you would ever be able to buy Cisco's security services for SD-WAN absent having one of their boxes in play. And so that means that there's going to be kind of a limit on that growth. The other surprising thing is we knew that the top 10, top 11 companies had the majority of the market. You could probably name off nine of them on your hands really fast. But what about those other companies? And we're starting to hear a lot more about them. In fact, at Networking Field Day a couple of weeks ago, we got to hear from one of them, Graphiant, and they are making a big splash. We've also heard a lot of other companies that are kind of coming up. Here's the deal, though. If you cannot differentiate the option, the um, products that you're offering, you're not going to make it because you are you're basically like Oliver Twist. You're asking for crumbs from a very full table. So how do you do that? Well, you either make something that's so revolutionary that people are going to swing their spend over to you at the next purchasing cycle, or you get bought. And I think for a lot of those companies that are kind of down at the bottom, getting acquired is probably the only way that they're going to be able to survive. Um, where does that leave the companies that are providing all of this stuff as a service like Megaport or Ariaka? Honestly, I don't know. And that's going to be an interesting spin on things. What I wonder, though, is if a lot of these companies are going to start changing the conversation away from making it very focused on networking and make it more about a security play, because that gives them opportunities to get into a completely different budget. It'd be interesting to see if any of these companies pop up at Security Field Day later this year. All right, Stephen, um, here's an exciting one that we just heard a little bit more about, because if you're looking to make the most of flexible scaling with Kubernetes, um, you're going to be excited about StormForge Optimized Live. Now, they previewed this at Cloud Field Day last week, and it can auto-tune both horizontal and vertical auto-scaling leveraging metrics for systems from systems like Datadog or Prometheus. If you're a Datadog user, you can install StormForge from the marketplace, collect information about running microservices, feed that data to the ML engine that StormForge uses to find the best settings for your workloads, and then send it all back again and just make it happen like magic. Uh, the seamless nature of the solution helps make everything pretty much transparent to the user, which is honestly what most people are looking for nowadays. But Stephen, you got an up-close and personal look at this when you were at Cloud Field Day last week. What do you think about these new capabilities? Yeah, this is very exciting. And let me tell you, the StormForge really wowed the Cloud Field Day audience with this because, um, frankly, one of the strange surprises about Kubernetes, um, so there was a, a recent study that showed that um, only about 40% of Kubernetes instances are actually using um, horizontal uh, auto process uh, auto scaling. And less than 1%, almost nobody is using vertical. What this means is that for the most part, Kubernetes is being used to orchestrate and, and, and basically run applications, but not scale, it, which is really surprising because you know, you'd think that that would be what Kubernetes is for. I mean, the whole point of having an automated um, you know, software integrated orchestrator is that it can add and remove nodes on demand, which is horizontal auto scaling or resize those. Um, and yet that's not happening. Why isn't it happening? Well, the reason is because it requires uh, careful tuning and, um, and management by the Kubernetes administrator, who may be a little nervous about accidentally setting things too small. 
And so what we've seen is that even those that are using auto scaling, uh, generally what they're doing is horizontal. In other words, we're going to add some more nodes, some more containers um, to support this. And, and they're leaving it sort of as is with a very generous amount of overhead. Well, overhead is expensive. And if you're doing this, if you're not auto-scaling or if you're auto-scaling with a huge amount of overhead, you're spending way more money than you ought to be. Uh, that's one reason that people are so excited about uh, Datadog, for example, because it allows them to see how their systems are really running. They can connect, them, collect the metrics. They can see really what's being used. And in a way, they can uh, kind of learn just how much extra excess they're spending uh, to have a little bit of headroom here. Well, what Stormforge is doing is they're taking that information from Datadog or any other uh, collection system like Prometheus, and they're processing it through an ML engine and making recommendations on auto-scaling that you can then put into practice. And not only that, but they keep that sort of fussing, because as you can imagine, if you make something bigger and then you can also make something wider, there's going to be kind of this weird push and pull where, um, oh no, we need more capacity. I'm going to make it bigger and, and give it more computer, give it more memory. And then, oh, hey, that means I don't need so many. And you're going to spin some things down. So you're, 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 you're horizontally narrowing. And then you go, oh no, I don't have enough. And so you're going to horizontally, and then you're, oh no, it's too big. And, I'm, and so that these things kind of fight. And what, uh, what Stormforge promises is to be able to intelligently, using a machine learning algorithm, uh, auto-scale systems, uh, or at least provide the metrics needed so that you can set it yourself to auto-scale systems. Uh, one of the funniest moments of Cloud Field Day, though, was basically at the end when everybody said, this is awesome, but I don't want to manually do this. Just do it for me. Just make it run, which is amazing because the idea that uh, a bunch of cloud architects and cloud administrators would be like, no, 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 I don't want to be involved in this. Just make it happen automatically is is pretty pretty eye-opening. So I, I imagine that Stormforge is in short order going to be allow uh, allow this basically to just happen on its own. But before they do that, they know this. Before they do that, they need to have some logic in there so that it doesn't make crazy mistakes like uh, scaling everything down right before quarter end or right before the you know busy uh, holiday shopping season or something like that. They're, I'm sure, going to add that in, and then they're probably going to add this automated. And frankly, a bunch of companies are going to save a bunch of money by using this. We're not on autopilot around here at the rundown because we have a couple of big stories that we wanted to take a, bit, a little bit of a closer look at it because I don't know if you know this or not, but it was a big couple of weeks for chip news. We're going to start off with the one that's happening this week, and that's going to be Intel Innovation 2022. <clears throat> There's lots of coverage of things that Intel's talking about. They've been showing off a lot of cool stuff, and no one's been showing it off more than our friend Pat Gelsinger. Now, if you recall, Pat Gelsinger's been on the job for just a little less than two years. You may recall the rundown episode where Stephen had a cow when we figured out that uh, Pat Gelsinger was going back to Intel. But he has been working tirelessly to keep Intel relevant in the IT market. This week's been kind of interesting because we've seen an admission that maybe Moore's Law isn't as dead as we thought it might be, but it might involve chiplets instead. Uh, we also heard about the end of Optane or the purported end of Optane. And then there's this anticipation for something called Sapphire Rapids, which hopefully somebody gets to take a look at pretty soon. So lots of buzz going on. Stephen, there's a lot that we have to discuss around what Intel's been talking about. But I want to start with something really simple. How does Intel look two years into the PAT era? 
Yeah, and that's really what uh, Intel Innovation 2022 was all about, was basically getting a look at what Mr. Gelsinger is doing with this company. And frankly, it looks pretty good. Um, there's a lot of good stuff happening there. The thing that impressed me about Intel Innovation was, as crazy as it sounds, the optimism and humility of the whole thing. They admitted that AMD is ahead. They admitted that they were kind of maybe not asleep at the wheel, but um, maybe resting on some laurels when it came to uh, having the the latest uh, chips, the latest process nodes uh, competing with AMD's products. Because I, I suspect that somebody within Intel said, oh, AMD's not really going to be able to deliver on this. You know, let's just, let's just keep using, uh, you know, things the way they were. Well, that's not how it turned out. And they admitted all this at the Intel Innovation Day. In fact, they were uh, pretty forthright in saying, hey, we're behind on process nodes. We're behind on a lot of different product areas, but we're going to try to catch up. And then what they did was they laid out an optimistic and reasonable um, vision for where this goes. There are a lot of things in here. Uh, one of the fun things was an Intel developer cloud where you can actually uh, use Sapphire Rapids right now if you're part of the invite-only crowd that, that was brought into that. Um, they also are talking about uh, yeah, delivering uh, Sapphire Rapids, delivering some of these next-generation products. Um, there was a lot of talk about uh, GPUs and uh, the ARC GPUs that are being shipped, uh, the new uh, next generation of client systems. But, you know, we're really focused on the on the enterprise. And, and that's really where the, the most interesting talk happened. Uh, one of the things that Intel is really leaning into is CXL. Uh, Intel created CXL uh, when other companies were doing some other ways of um, integrating and uh, disaggregated components into servers. Intel created CXL around PCI Express. And now CXL is basically taking over the world. Intel is very much uh, delivering on uh, their CXL promises. Um, now, some of that delivery happens in Sapphire Rapids, and we really need those parts in the market, but they're, they're starting to deliver Sapphire Rapids as well. Uh, the other thing that Intel is doing is leaning into some of the other areas of the company. For example, FPGA. Uh, the FPGA group has really been slow to innovate. In fact, some of the original pre-Intel uh, products are still out there shipping on really old process nodes, well, that's all going away. They're going to have a whole new generation of FPGA products. They're going to rev everything from the cheapest to the most capable FPGAs. They're going to move them all to the more advanced process nodes and really take on the new uh, AMD Xilinx combination uh, in that market. The, uh, an, uh, the same thing is true of basically everything else Intel is doing. Silicon photonics. Intel is way ahead in silicon photonics, and they absolutely leaned into that at this innovation day. In fact, they did a wonderful uh, silicon photonics demo from their lab for all the people that were gathered there. Um, and, and silicon photonics is so important to the entire industry that uh, I think I should point out that uh, companies that uh, sort of compete with Intel are actually using Intel's technology for that simply because it's the only way to get high bandwidth in networking applications. And of course, Silicon Photonics also nicely dovetails with CXL and with this new chiplet architecture. So that's another thing that Intel leaned into. UCIE, which we've talked about here on the rundown. UCI Express. What you can think about with this is 
It's a way for companies to uh, combine chiplets to make a custom processor. So imagine um, you are an OEM building a next generation network switch or storage device or even a server uh, or something for the cloud. Um, and you want, you know, this many high performance CPU cores and this much, uh, you know, AI uh, ML engine. And you want some uh, silicon photonics IO. You want some, some CXL uh, capability in there. Maybe you also want to combine and mix and match from different vendors. Well, that's what UCI Express is promising. So imagine that CPU has, I don't know, like an um, ARM cores and Intel Silicon Photonics and NVIDIA ML engine and maybe an AMD GPU all in one core uh, or, or one chip. Well, you can do that. You'll be able to do that. And Intel is going to be building these chips for customers. They're going to be fabbing these chips. They're going to be working with TSMC and Samsung and others to bring all this stuff to market. And that really is pretty exciting because what it does is it takes away all of the things that people were complaining about Intel. Oh, they're behind on this. They're behind on that. They're behind on the other. Well, all those things are kind of wiped away. And now there's the, there's a new Intel in town that works with other companies that has you know standards instead of proprietary products that that tries to make the best of different IP that embraces ARM that embraces all these other companies and 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 that for me was the message that I got from Innovation Day. So I want to take off my Gelsinger fanboy hat for just a second because let's be fair we all love Pat he's a great human being and he's a geek just like us. And I want to talk about Gelsinger, the manager, for just a moment, because let's compare Pat to his predecessor, Bob Swan, who was the former CFO before he took the reins. To me, the single-minded focus that Pat Gelsinger has put on Intel over the last two years is prob probably the most important thing. When you're a CFO, you deal in dollars and cents. And so what happens is you look at this market and you go, well, I could take a little bit of market share from these people over here and I might be able to get involved with something over there. And you spread out and maybe you stop thinking about being the best chip maker in the world and you think about being an okay provider of stuff all over the place. And if you're one of those folks that's gone into the store recently and seen somebody's brand name that you used to know as like a... You know, I don't know, like a keyboard manufacturer, but now it's on mice and headphones and uh, trackpads and I don't know, like water bottles. You're like, what are you guys doing? Like, why are you putting out these mediocre products just to get your name out there? Aha. Now you're talking about somebody who doesn't really care about the value of what they produce as much as how much of it they can produce at a time. And then Pat steps in and goes, what are we doing, guys? Like, why are we doing all of these other things and not focusing on the stuff that made us famous? Like, like the Intel inside campaign. Remember when that was the most important decision that you could make in a computer was whether or not it was running an Intel chip and you had something you could build off of and you knew what it could do and you were happy with its capabilities. Does it even matter anymore? Should it matter? I think when Pat stepped in, he said, yeah, it should. It should absolutely matter to the companies that are using our products that Intel inside should still matter. But in order to do that, we have to be better at what we build. And the landscape of technology today is radically different than it was even just three years ago. And so in order to make that important, even absent the chip shortage, you have to build the best stuff and you have to put the best stuff together to make better stuff. And I love that that's what Intel is trying to do. And yes, it means that we're going to curtail some product lines. 
Yes, it means we're going to have to reorganize things. Yeah, it means we're going to have to politic to try to get um, chip fabs built here in the U.S. so that our companies can produce those chips. And we got to play catch up all over the place. And Intel realizes this. And maybe that is the key. Maybe Intel stepping up to the stage and going, hey, guys, we're behind. Maybe not by a lot, but we're behind and we need to be better. And we need to use that competition to drive us forward, to be better to put out the best stuff is the first admission in a long chain of building Intel back to be a dominant player in the market. No one would argue that they're not a dominant player in the market, but things are always better when there are two companies duking it out and fighting to be the best at something as opposed to a company who feels that they have market dominance going, you know, we're bored. Let's build something that we can put our name on that'll be okay for a while because we're so good at everything else, nobody can stop us. That's usually when they sneak up behind you and pass you without realizing it. So I'm excited to see what Intel has to say. I'm hoping that we're going to see Sapphire Rapids pretty soon. And one of the big announcements that came out was this Intel developer cloud where companies can start getting special access to start building on chips, which I think is something that has been needed because it allows the developers to build for future architectures, but also to give Intel feedback on things that they're seeing that need to be fixed before those chips can go live to the fabs. That's a huge way for Intel to kind of position themselves in a forward-facing direction because what it effectively means is, is that the companies are building apps to run on Intel chips before they're released. It means that Intel is going to have special optimizations ready to go as soon as those chips hit the market so that they can talk about how important it is to be running those chips. Time will tell, as it always does, but with Pat behind the wheel, I think maybe the future's a little bit brighter and a little less scattered. All right, well... Intel is not the only company that makes chips, obviously. Um, so last week, uh, there was also a lot of news coming out of NVIDIA GTC 2022. Um, probably you've heard by now, Hopper is getting into the hands of data center operators. It's growing like crazy. Uh, DGX Base Pod is a new offering that's based on a variation of the existing DGX Pod. Oh, and then uh, Jensen Wong got on stage and said, Moore's Law is dead. You know, not stirring the pot or anything, right? Um, Steven, uh, this is big news for rundown listeners. And obviously with us both being out last week, we didn't get a chance to really talk about it as much as we wanted to, but what were your big takeaways from GTC? Well, usually GTC is a pretty exciting time for those of us in the enterprise space, but I have to say that this GTC was really dominated by more of the client side of, of things. So, um, that being said, let's focus on what they did say about the enterprise. Now, first off, uh, Moore's Law is, um, I don't know, resting, uh, pining for the fjords. Um, it ain't dead. Um, but that being said, it's different. And maybe it never was alive to begin with. Um, what we're seeing, though, is uh, NVIDIA really stepping on the gas here in terms of what they're able to produce. Now, the first thing that I want to focus on is Hopper. So as you mentioned, Hopper is real. Hopper is uh, entering production. Again, that was probably the most important announcement at GTC was that Hopper is shipping and it's going to be everywhere. We've also got our first look, thanks to ML Commons, uh, ML Perf, uh, at the performance of Hopper. And it is amazing. In fact, the H100 looks like it can be as much as five times faster than the A100 in some uh, AI and ML benchmarks. And, and frankly, that's not all that surprising because it looked great on paper, but you just never know until the rubber meets the road. 
Well, the rubber's meeting the road. Uh, these things are in the hands of cloud providers now and are going to be rolling out basically for the rest of the year. And they, uh, it looks like a tremendous offering. Uh, going with Hopper is NVIDIA's Grace. Now, remember, this is the um, ARM-based CPU that can uh, join Hopper in an NVLink fabric and give Hopper the kind of uh, CPU and IO and memory and storage that it needs to keep it fed. Uh, for a long time, this kind of uh, thing was provided by an Intel or an AMD CPU uh, running x86 instructions. Well, now with Grace, which uh, it turns out is run on uh, ARM's latest Neoverse V2 cores, um, we're going to be able to uh, feed the hopper with uh, ARM CPUs that come from NVIDIA. This is a major change because, again, NVIDIA has been a platform company that has partnered with AMD and Intel for a long, long time. And Grace and Hopper look so compelling that I think there's a good chance that in 2023, the story may be, hmm, why would somebody choose a Xeon or even an Epic to go with Hopper when Grace provides better performance and better support? So that's all coming and that's all been confirmed uh, from NVIDIA. Um, way to go, guys. Nice, nice job. Another thing that was important, as you mentioned, was this whole idea of a uh, base pod. Now, the base pod is not next generation stuff. It's an evolution of the current DGX, uh, EGX uh, reference architecture model. But what it does is it combines uh, DGX with an A100, uh, the previous generation, well, which is still awesome, by the way, with um, uh, storage and networking from third parties. And the, um, the storage companies that are signing up are friends of Field A and companies that we frequently talk about here on the rundown. So companies like Weka, which has a really tremendous scalable storage offering um, combined with DGX BasePod, uh, DDN, which has focused quite a lot on uh, artificial intelligence, um, Dell, uh, NetApp, Pure Storage, and of course, Vast Data, which is really coming on strong. The, all of these systems are really, really excellent systems. You know, the NetApp system with uh, ONTAP uh, is a nice counterpoint to what they've been doing with the cloud. Um, pure storage as well is really killing it in the data center. Um, they're coming on strong in the, in the cloud. And then here they are with a uh, DGX uh, base pod uh, solution. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, Vast Data is uh, really, really coming on strong as well. So. Um, the base pod is a great, scalable, uh, integrated uh, NVIDIA-based solution for somebody who's trying to implement these things in the data center. Uh, another thing that we saw at the keynote, of course, is a hint at what comes next. So there was a lot of talk about Lovelace, which is, well, the more graphical uh, partner of, of Hopper. In other words, take the, just like Hopper is the next generation for uh, AI and ML and other kind of uh, offload compute workloads, uh, Lovelace is really focused around more traditional GPU uh, workloads, and it looks just as good uh, and just as much of an advancement. And there's been a lot of suggestion that there's going to be a companion ARM server, uh, maybe, I don't know, we'll see. But overall, um, I think that the, uh, the Lovelace architecture is maybe less relevant for the enterprise, but still very, very strong. So essentially, that's what we saw with GTC this year. Like I said, we saw a lot more focus on GPU, 
but we uh, we did get the big news that uh, Hopper is shipping, and of course the DGX base pod. But uh, really, I think that the takeaway from this is sort of the counterpoint between AMD, NVIDIA, and Intel, especially in the uh, data center market. All of them are really trying to do things. They're really trying to do things differently. Um, you know, Intel's really leaning into CXL. NVIDIA is really leaning into their proprietary NVLink. But nobody's closing the door on anyone. And I think that really 2023 is going to be an exciting year as a lot of this stuff hits the market. Yeah, I felt like that they were really heavily biased towards some of the new GPUs that they're offering. But of course, considering everything that's been changing in the GPU market recently, I think that was probably the news that everybody wanted to hear. And then, you know, we heard like uh, the Thor chip, which is going to be kind of integrated into imaging sensors and things like that. And then we heard about Omniverse Cloud, which is essentially tying all of these things together and putting it in an as a service offering that NVIDIA is like, hey, you want to build these virtual worlds? I don't know why, but we'll we'll sell you the, the stuff to do it. But I think that it's interesting that that's kind of where NVIDIA is positioning themselves. They're they're trying to offer a breadth of things that leverage the technologies that they've been so good at and trying to uh, basically make it so that, um, you know, you want to go to NVIDIA for everything to start off with. Um, you know, obviously, we didn't get a lot of talk about DPUs. We didn't get a lot of talk about some of the other enterprise things that we talked about here on the rundown. But I think that it's all going to be integrated together as we move forward, because NVIDIA is going to try to position this tiered system of being able to offer chips that will do pretty much whatever you want, whether you want to rent it from them to build it or buy it from them to put in your own data center. And, you know, maybe that gives us a third entrant into that market. As we talked about, you know, Intel will get better when AMD, when, because they've acknowledged that AMD is kind of in the lead. So now they have a way to play. But now we have this third entrant in NVIDIA saying, well, why are we building it the way that you guys are building against each other? Why don't we just do it this way with a lot of ARM processors and a lot of distributed offerings? And of course, those monster NVIDIA GPUs that they're so known for, maybe it's a completely different way to look at things. And, you know, there was even a lot of talk around Ampere, which <clears throat> we've discussed quite a bit because, you know, if ARM does take over the data center, that's really bad news for companies like Intel, but it's really great news for companies like NVIDIA who have effectively bet the farm on on arm architecture so it's exciting again like like think about the number of stories that we've been talking about over the last few weeks that involve nvidia intel arm uh architecture discussions like like have you remembered a time when this was ex that exciting like how far back do you have to go like cyrix and the the you know faux 586 chips i mean i can't wait to see where this goes now to be completely fair, maybe Jensen Wong needs to dial back the rhetoric on Moore's Law being dead um, because we're just finding new ways to reinterpret Moore's Law. And that's just the way that things are going to be for the foreseeable future until we can get to technologies like silicon photonics, which remove the last barriers around heat and things like that. But again, when you're doing a lot of research and you're trying to figure those things out and you're making leaps and bounds as it goes along, I mean, we're right back where we started with exciting new technologies that are taking over the industry and hopefully making things a little bit easier for us, whether it's our home PCs, GPUs, or in the enterprise where we're trying to, to build some uh, technologies. And quite honestly, it warms my heart to see that NVIDIA has embraced some of the past and started naming a lot of their products after some of the pioneering women in uh, technology in the early computing days. So, you know, I'll buy it just for the name alone. Um, speaking of old technology though, Stephen, uh, we're going to include a video in the show notes here of, uh, some crazy man who built a device that allows you to simulate 
hard drive clicking noises for your SSD. So if you're nostalgic for the good old days of listening to your hard drive defrag itself and lulling you into a sense of sleep, check out the video we're going to include in the show notes um, and watch along for the 13-minute uh, defrag of this wonderful uh, hard drive. And uh, also, don't defrag your SSDs. It's, it's not necessary. But if you, if you need a little noise, go for it. Um, we do have some things coming up in the week ahead, though, that we wanted to tell you about. The first one, of course, is Mobility Field Day 8. That's actually taking place next week. I'll be in Silicon Valley October 5th and 6th, hearing from some great companies. Um, you know, Arista, uh, Ventive, we're actually getting a presentation from Ybot. If you want to learn more about who they are, when they're going to be presenting, and who the delegates are going to be, make sure you head over to techfieldday.com and check out the schedule. We're really excited to have that. And Stephen, what's coming up next for you? Well, uh, I'm heading to OCP Summit, uh, October 18th through 20th. And in fact, uh, I will be working with my friends from Memverge to host uh, a CXL forum, an all-day CXL symposium at OCP Summit on Thursday, October 20th. So if you're coming to OCP Summit, please do join us there in person. Otherwise, keep an eye on the uh, Gestalt IT and Tech Field Day channels because we're going to be posting video from that. And it's actually going to feature some special Tech Field Day content as well. And of course, uh, that week as well is Tech Field Day 26. Uh, we'll be uh, ha hearing from some other companies that maybe are not CXL related. Uh, and if you'd like to learn more about that, go to techfieldday.com. Awesome. Well, that'll just about do it for this episode of The Rundown. We want to thank you all very much for tuning in. We are very excited to bring you the show every Wednesday around 1230 Eastern Time, uh, whether it's me or Stephen or any one of our great uh, co-hosts that have worked with us over the over the last couple of years. We are, we're going to be dedicated to bringing you the news. Um, if you want to listen to this as a podcast, you can always subscribe in your favorite podcast application of choice. Look, just look for the Gestalt IT Rundown. And as always, if you have any stories that you'd like to submit, please make sure you do those. Just tag us. Uh, we're at Gestalt IT. Use the hashtag Rundown, and uh, we'll take a look at those. But we're going to go ahead and wrap it up because this has been an extra long episode, and we want to give you an opportunity to check out all the cool things that we're seeing. And we should be back next week with more great episodes. And remember that it's National Drink Beer Day, so if you're not on the clock, crack open a cold one, and we will see you next Wednesday.